Hi, my name's Ryan Perry. I'm the pastor at Seneca Baptist Church, and we are so thankful that you're joining us in this online resource. Our prayer for you is that this resource would not replace your active involvement in a local body of Christ, but would rather be supplemental to it. If you are interested in getting further connected to the ministry of Seneca Baptist Church or to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you and enjoy. Amen. Don't you appreciate our musicians that lead us in worship? And they've had a full week, rehearsals and boy, last uh, yesterday was just so amazing. I am so appreciative and I was telling Christopher, I cannot wait until this choir loft is that full every Sunday morning. Amen. We've had a great week, the ladies' event. You ladies did a great job, and the men, what great servers. We've got a good wait staff here. So uh, we're delighted you're here, and I love Jackson's enthusiasm for the Word of God. This is going to be awesome, Jackson. I agree with you. So open your Bibles again. Have you ever been on a journey? I'm sure you have. I remember as a kid, and, and my dad was pastor up in Morganton, North Carolina, then we moved to Thomasville, and as far as I was concerned, that was a, a journey across the United States. So we would, for about a month or month and a half, we'd have to drive from Morgan to Thomasville. Now you say, that's not that far, about a, two hours at that time. And the fact of the matter is, for me, that was like going across the United States. And so I had enough treats in the back seat that it was, I could have traveled across the U.S., you know, I had enough chips and all, because you never know, you never know whether you're going to get to stop, but with my dad driving particularly, if we were running a little late. Well, Israel is on a journey right now, and it's a journey that resembles our own spiritual journey. You remember the events, and if you don't, let's kind of do a little bit of a survey here and go back. God has redeemed them by miraculous provision through the Red Sea, a, a miraculous provision that now makes Israel a unique people in two ways. You see, Israel now, at this point in time, there's a distinction that occurs. They were his by creation, and now they are his by redemption. Now, they're going to celebrate this in just a few short chapters, and so since Brother Ryan's not here, I'm going to steal his thunder. If you turn over to chapter 19, I want to see you the end of this journey. You remember when Moses was called to take them on this journey, he was most reluctant to say the least. And he basically said, Lord, if you don't go, I'm not going either, which is not a bad decision. So you go with us. And God promised him, he said, at the end of this journey, I'm going to bring you back to this same mountain and I'm going to let you worship me here. So we're going to see the end of the journey so that we can talk a little bit about the challenges in the midst of the journey. Turn to chapter 19, and he goes down to verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you to myself on eagles' wings, and I brought you to myself. Now, listen, there's a covenant here, an if-then covenant. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession. Now, the, the terminology there actually in the Hebrew is a peculiar possession or a movable possession. So Israel, because of redemption, they are God's people on 
journey or on mission with him. So he connects the story. He says, among all the peoples, for the earth is mine. Now, the statement that the earth is mine is not simply a statement of fact, as we know. It was his by creation. But he's not talking about the earth in its physical realm. He's talking about the peoples of the earth. So Israel's redemption has in view the redemption of the nation. So listen to what he says. He says in the next verse, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Now, one of the great doctrines of Southern Baptist life is the priesthood of all believers. And this is kind of the origin of that, that they now represent the sovereign God among the peoples of the nations. This is what God is taking them to. So we have the beginning of the story, the redemption at the Red Sea, We're in the middle of the story, and the end of the story, in a sense, is that not just getting to Canaan, we sometimes look at that uh, journey for them, but their journey is not simply a destination, a place, it is a people. They are to be developed into a people that can be God's unique possession among all the nations, for they are His. So God's planning to use them in a redemptive fashion. One of the things that's excited us about our move to Seneca about a year or so ago is that my wife has always had a passion both for the Muslim people and for the nation. She worked for the IMB, as I told you, and now, to, to our delight and surprise, God is bringing nations here. Can you believe that? Afghans, Guatemalans, and we have the privilege of living among them. We have the privilege of sharing what God is doing because that's how God designed us. This is what God is developing among this people. So the journey begins in chapter 15 with a celebration of God's great victory. And three days later, as they travel through the wilderness of Shur, they face a lack of water. The grumbling sets in, which is tragically the refrain to every verse of their journey. Their immediate target in chapter 15, 24, 16, 2 is Moses. But the ultimate target of their complaining is the Lord himself. Listen to chapter 16, verse 8. Moses said, this will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to full in the morning. Lord, hears your grumblings, which you are grumbling against him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. Now, why? Because Moses and Aaron and Miriam, his sister, they're simply following the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. They don't have a journey in, in destination. God's the destination. And so as Israel, what they're grumbling about is God's apparent lack of provision. So this morning we're going to look at the story of the Lord provides. He had provided for their salvation. He then provided water to quench their thirst. He turned the bitter water to sweet He revealed himself to be Jehovah Rophe, chapter 15, verse 26, the one who is the healer. He led them to Elam, a place of rest and abundance. Then last week we began the story of the man, and now we're going to combine it with the provision of meat. You know, the refrain is they're murmuring, but the amazing part of this story is God's gracious dealing with an unbelieving and ungrateful people. Aren't we glad? (laughs) Because I sometimes resemble Israel. I don't know whether you do or not, but sometimes when God's not on my agenda or on my timetable, it kind of 
sometimes I'm beginning to grumble or ask the question. So we want to look at the narrative again, and Jackson read it, so I'm just going to kind of take you through the story as quickly as I can so we can find the principles from their journey that will assist us on our spiritual journey. There are about three or four suggestions concerning the nature of the abundance of manna and quail. Manna is described in verse 14 as a flake-like thing. Now some commentators see these as God using natural occurrences in a supernatural way and that it's his timing to provide for his people that is the miracle. Because these came when and where God said they would. And on one instance, obviously, they can't have it the next day. So God is certainly timing the events of this feeding of both manna and quail. Others suggest uh, that this manna is a sweet secretion of desert trees that drops upon the ground and turns white in the spring or early summer. Uh, the other suggestion is not quite as nice or delicate. It's the secretion from insects. Since some of the early versions of the Targum of Onculus has the reading scales, hmm. I actually lean towards the first because a secretion of an insect does not sound very filling or appetizing for 40 years. The description in verse 31 seems to suggest the other. The house of Israel named it manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and its taste was like wafers with honey. I, I can handle that one. Secretion of insects leaves me a little bit cold. It's also well known that quails migrate regularly between South Europe and Arabia across the Sinai Peninsula, and they are known for their strong but low flight, and they would rest on the ground or in low bushes at nightfall. And when exhausted, they would be unable to rise above the low black tents of the nobads, and so they were often too weary to take off. So a quail running on the ground would be easy quarry. Herodotus, an ancient Greek historian, tells us they were a favorite delicacy of the Egyptians. In any case, however you want to explain it, it is, in fact, God's miraculous provision. By the way, the word manna, we might just want to go with it. Verse 15, when they saw it, this literal translation of the word manna, what is it? Kind of like your kids sometimes when you prepare a dish they're not familiar with, and they kind of look at it and turn their nose up and say, oh, mm -mm. yeah, what, what's that? What is it? Let's give it a shot. Now, verse 23, by the way, the Lord tells them in verse 16, first of all, that they're going to get an omer apiece. Well, if you want to know what an omer is, look down at verse 36. An omer is a tenth of an ephah. Got it? You're good, right? It doesn't help a whole lot. Now, that was mine. That's clear as mud. An ephah was a Hebrew unit drive measure equivalent to 33 liters, which is approximately a bushel. So an omer would be a tenth of that, 3.3 liters, 4.8 quarts, a gallon. So everybody got a gallon of food a day, everyone in the tent. It was an abundant daily provision made clear by the fact that there would be no excess and no lack, verse 18. So there was so much that they were instructed to leave none until the morning, because if they did, what would happen? Some would become foul. 
Verse 23, by the way, in this text, contains the first mention of the word Sabbath in the entire Bible. The concept was clearly there in Genesis, wasn't it? The Lord rested on the Sabbath, but in terms of an event or celebration. Now, it's likely that they had been celebrating the Sabbath this entire time, but during those years of slavery, when they were in bondage, their time was not their own, so they weren't able to celebrate the Sabbath, and now God provides it for them. Notice that the Sabbath, verse 20, is as much of God's provision as is the bread. I think sometimes in our day of busyness, we forget that the Sabbath still is His, the Sabbath principle. We celebrate it, of course, on Sunday rather than on the Sabbath. The Lord provided this manna for 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. As visible evidence of God's provision, they were told to keep an omer of this manna in a jar and place it before the Lord. So now what can we learn from this? I want to give you four principles. I hope you're a note-taking people. I, I always love for people to bring their Bible and to bring the notebook because it's not what I say, it's what God's Word says, and you're not going to remember everything I say. So there are four great principles here. God's provision, so write that down first. We're going to learn something about God's provision. Then we're going to learn about God, our circumstances, how God works in our circumstances. So first of all is His provision, our circumstances, and then thirdly, the requirement, which is radical obedience. And fourth, we're going to ask the question, why are we called to remember? At the very end of the story, he says, I want you to put some of this away because I want you to remember. Why is that important for our spiritual journey? So first of all, God's provision. Number one, we can learn this. It is always sufficient. Did you notice in verse 18 that there's no excess and there was no lack? I'll give you a cross-reference here, those of you who like cross-references. If you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 15, you remember, in, I'm, I'm not going to turn there, I'm just going to let you turn there in your brain, write it on your notes, but you remember Paul is talking about the gift that, that the churches in Achaia and Macedonia are going to bring for the saints in Jerusalem. So it's kind of the section, chapter 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, where he's talking about giving and the principle of giving. And he talks about sowing and reaping. But in chapter 8, verse 15, he actually makes a reference back to this manna, how God provided it. And he talks about the fact that there were those who gathered. And when they gathered, no matter how much they gathered, there wasn't an excess. And those who couldn't gather as much, there was never a lack. And Paul actually interprets this a little differently in that he is talking about the fact that now in Macedonia and Achaia, those churches have a greater abundance. So they're going to share with the church in Jerusalem right now who's experiencing famine and a lack. And so it was their abundance that made up the lack of the others. Now, if you apply that back to this story, there may have been widows who it would have been difficult for them to gather an omer of, of, of this uh, manna each day. But there were some of the folks there who were stronger and more able and more capable, and they could gather more. So it's not simply that each person necessarily gathered an omer of this, but that there was such sharing in the fellowship that those who gathered more provided for those who had a lack. So Paul interprets this phrase 
in that way that there were those who indeed perhaps collected more, but they did not keep more because if they kept more, what would happen to it? It would get foul and stink. Sometimes we create an excess when there's need among others. So Paul is talking about the fact, or excuse me, there that this, this parallel, this passage, this journey, this spiritual principle teaches us something today about sharing through the fellowship. So it is always sufficient. The abundant, gracious provision has to be understood in light of the mention of Israel's constant murmurings. Their faith was shallow and their stomachs, that is their earthly desire, prevailed over their minds and hearts. Now Moses would remind the next generation of this abundant provision before they entered the promised land. Keep your finger in here and turn over to Deuteronomy. We're going to do this twice because you remember what we have in Deuteronomy. The word Deuteronomy means the second Deuteros, namas, the second law. It's not a second law, it's the same law, but it was a reminder of that law because what happens? The first generation gets to the promised land, what happens? They disobey, they fail to go in, and they're wandering now for 38 years, nearly an entire generation, and so God is bringing up a new generation. So Moses, before he passes on the, 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 the rule to Joshua, He's going to remind them of these things. So look at Deuteronomy. He's going to clarify the same emphasis that he gives here. Chapter 8 and verse 4. And we're going to come back to this passage in just a minute. Verse 4, your clothing. Well, we start at verse 3. He humbled you. He let you be hungry. He fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know about, that he might make you understand. Now, remember, this is the the children of these people. So he's saying, you didn't know where it came from as a child, but your fathers didn't know where it came from either, that he would make you understand what? That man does not live by bread alone. Man lives by every, the, everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. He even says, your clothing did not wear out, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Now you imagine standing there and you not only have been fed, but as a child you look down and the sandals that you've been wearing, you've been wearing for 38 years traveling through the wilderness, and God miraculously provided that they didn't even wear out, and the clothes had not become tattered, that God was providing everything they needed in a consistent way. So it is always sufficient. Secondly, it reveals God's character. They actually had historical precedence to know that God was faithful to provide all they needed. The story of the patriarchs, that is the fathers of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, etc., were being passed down generation to generation, even before they were recorded in these first five books we call the Torah. So the, the stories of that, you'll remember oftentimes they'll refer to the God of what? The God of Jacob, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. So you remember the story kind of at the end of Abraham's life and He's been waiting for a son. So in, in the middle of his journey, he does what some of us does. He tries to help God out. So he first of all suggests that he will adopt Eliezer's son. Remember the story? And then, of course, uh, his wife suggests to go into the handmaiden, and you've got a son that's given in that way. But then you have this precious son of promise. 
And then we get to a story that you just scratch your head at. Genesis 22. Genesis 22, Abraham is told to sacrifice Isaac. Heads to the top of the mountain. On the way up, his son asked him a question. He said, Dad, I, 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 I've, I've got the wood here, and, and I see all the elements for the sacrifice, but uh, we don't have a lamb. And, and Abraham says to him, the Lord will provide. It's the name, by the way, that later on you'll get is Jehovah Jireh. So if you want to write that down, Jehovah Jireh, the word Jireh means to see. It actually speaks of God's prevision, that God sees. What he's saying, if, you, if you'd have been his son, here's how you'd have heard it. When they're going up the mountain, he says, don't worry, son, the Lord sees. So we get to the top of the mountain. You, you know the story well. It's dramatic, isn't it? He binds his son. He, he gets the wood. He's laying it on the altar. I can only imagine he's going as slow as possible because he is determined at this point that he believes, by the way, the book of Hebrews says that he was daring to believe that if he took his son's life, God would raise him from the dead. Now, we may not have that trouble believing that today because we're on this side of the resurrection, but there's no mention of the resurrection at this point in time. So Abraham was willing to believe by faith that God's provision was enough even if he took his son's life at God's command, that God would not command him to do what he had not provided for him. And when he raises his knife in that gesture that he's going to take his son's life, the Lord says, now, now I know. You're going to see this important in a minute. Now I know that you trust me. And it's at that moment that Abraham sees the lamb that was already there provided. He was already in the bushes. It, we sometimes read that story like Star Trek. Beam me down, Scotty. You know, like God's going to beam a lamb down. No, the lamb was already there. You ever ask the question, why didn't he see this lamb earlier? I, I've got a proposition to suggest. He was so focused on Isaac and his circumstances that he missed the provision of God for a moment. Have you ever been there? I have. I get so focused sometimes on, on my issues and my circumstances that I'm looking at it so much that I can't really trust God that he has prevision and his prevision dictates our provision. I wrote a book on the names of God and it's one of my wife's favorite and we moved to South Carolina from Tennessee and just before we were prepared to move my wife was diagnosed with cancer. Uh, we had the initial treatment there. We came to South Carolina and began the chemotherapy. And, you know, you kind of ask the question, why and what? And it was that time that she turned back to that book and read that chapter. And she will tell you, it's part of her story, a part of her testimony, God's prevision. We didn't know this. Doctors didn't know this. In fact, she had had an examination the week before that had kind of missed this whole element. And God's prevision, there's nothing surprising our God. Nothing going on in your life, nothing going on in our nation, nothing going on in our culture that has caught God by surprise. He is an omniscient God. He knows everything, and He sees everything, and His provision is already in place for you, for us. That's what this whole story is about, that God's provision is sufficient and that it reveals His character. He is Jehovah Jireh. He is the Lord who provides. Thirdly, 
It is always on time. You ever grow impatient with God? Yeah, I do. We're so much like Israel. That's why these journeys are important to us. It is a daily provision. It's illustrated in two different ways. Number one, they were warned not to leave any until the morning. So they're gathering every day. So they're reminded they've got to go out the next morning. God provides, God provides, God provides. Then he says, oh, by the way, on the Sabbath, you're not going to get to go out and eat. So don't store up any more than you need during that, that week. But you can on the Sabbath. God could make it sufficient for two days, couldn't he? So yes, they're able to do it then. But on the other days, they can't store it up. When they disobeyed, they noticed that it became foul and putrid. I can never read this passage without thinking of the Lord's Prayer. Ever ask, why does he teach us to pray our daily bread? Most of us aren't satisfied with that. We, we like a generation's worth of bread, at least a week's worth. I remember I grew up during the time some of you did, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Remember that? Uh, people in our neighborhood were building a, a shelter, you know, down in the basement so that if the nukes hit, you know, it, it's, my wife and I talk about it a lot. It was stunning what, how silly we were. So we'd have drills at elementary school that if the nuclear bomb hits, hide under your desk. Oh, yeah, that, that's really going to make some difference until everybody's storing this stuff in the basement. So I asked my dad, are we going to build one? He said, no, son. He said, I'm going to go out with the first wave. I'm headed to glory anyway, so don't do that. Well, my neighbor had one. He put all sorts of water and crackers. I don't know how long you can live on Lance crackers. But this family wasn't going to live long because I knew where they were and my friend did. And every afternoon after school, if we didn't get enough snack at home, we had plenty of snack. And if the bomb had hit, they're going to go down and it is depleted. God's resources are never depleted. So why does he teach us to ask for daily bread? Sometime when you have a chance to read that whole passage, I want to show you something interesting just before he teaches them how to pray he says your father knows now so often I, I approach prayer like I'm giving God a whole list of information he doesn't know so I'm thinking well he's busy on the other side of the universe I better tell him I'm really struggling I've got some need you don't know about he said hey your father knows when he gets to the end of it, he says, don't be anxious about this. Don't be anxious about food. Don't be anxious about clothes. Don't be anxious about what this is. He says, because the Gentiles, now translate that pagans, the pagans have all the same needs you do. What's the difference? But your father knows. That's Matthew 6, 32. So he starts and ends with exactly what Abraham discovered, and that is that God's prevision is going to dictate his provision. So our prayer is related to daily bread because God's kingdom activity in our midst is every day. So let me tell you why God says daily bread. Number one, it reminds us that we are totally and daily relying upon God's grace. We have a tendency to think, okay, I needed grace when I was saved, but I can handle this. But we get into a situation, we think, I, I, 
I, I can do this on my own. And we, it, we're like a kid. You remember when your kids wanted to button up their own blouse or their own shirt? And you would look at them, and they already have the first button in the wrong hole. And I don't care how hard you try to get that shirt or blouse buttoned up with the first button in the wrong hole, it will never come out even, will it? And yet you would try to help them what they do. They'd say, I can do it myself. Do it myself. We're kind of like that as Christians. So God has to remind us that every day we're relying upon Him. Secondly, He wants to teach us the necessity of habitual dependence. Why, Why does sometimes our pastor stress daily Bible study, daily prayer, you know, we skip it, come back on next Sunday, we'll get, a, we'll get another meal. No, we, we can't skip. It's habitual. We can't not go out and gather again in the morning. He's reminding us that it is a habitual need of our lives. Third, it is a reminder that there are some things we cannot store up for tomorrow. Let me give you some illustrations. Love in a marriage is like that. It's got to be refreshed daily or it begins to putrefy. Kind of like the guy whose wife, after about 25 years, said, you know, we started our marriage and you just told me all the time how much you love me. Why don't you tell me that anymore? His answer is, well, I told you once and that ought to be enough. Well, I don't know about your wife, but that's not really enough for mine. And the reality is that's true in our relationship with God. Sometimes we forget how important it is for us to tell him daily in that relationship. Love in the home must be kept alive by word and deed each day. We could mention other things like democracy, education, character, civilization itself. Arnold Toynbee, the eminent historian, said, quote, the jungle like a beast waits to spring on a careless civilization. I sometimes think we're living in that careless situation. But in regard to this story, it's faith. Faith which can't be stored up. Anytime you think you've arrived on your spiritual journey and you neglect daily obedience, your faith will begin to atrophy. When we fail to nurture our faith on a daily basis, we murmur because we doubt God's provision. That's why the book of Hebrews warns against neglecting spiritual disciplines. In fact, it's so important, I want you to turn to that passage, or we'll have it on the screen for you. In the book of Hebrews, he warns us what can happen when we neglect these things. Therefore, brethren, let me just read it, you'll see it on the screen. Since we have confidence to enter the holy bus by, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that's his flesh, since we have a great high priest over us. So we have this introduction into this by the blood of the cross we've been saved we have a great high priest let us look at these this this is the lettuce let's draw near with a sincere heart fully assured of faith having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil con conscience in our bodies we said with pure water let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful let us consider how to stimulate one another to good deed and love not forsaking the assembling together is the habit of some encourage one another as you see the day drawing near in our in our faith walk it's important that we stimulate one another in good deeds that we realize that we cannot simply store that up that it is an ongoing habitual responsibility and response on our part 
our circumstances test us, not God. I don't know if you noticed this, but throughout the text, there's an emphasis on testing. So go back to Exodus chapter 15, or excuse me, uh, 1525, as soon as we get out of the out of the, the water of Elam and he'd been led these three days, then it, they cried out to the Lord, verse 25, and the Lord showed him a tree, he threw it into the water, the water became sweet, then he made for them a statute and a regulation and there he tested them. Chapter 16, verse 24. So they put it aside in the morning as it was, Moses had ordered, and it goes on to talk about how that God had tested them. We're going to get over to Deuteronomy chapter 8 again. I told you we'd go back to that one. So we'll work your way back to Deuteronomy unless you kept your finger in there for a while. Chapter 8. Now listen to the whole context. Verse 1, all the commandments that I am commanding you today, be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and out and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord God led you in the wilderness 40 years that he might, what? Humble you by testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you. He let you be hungry. He fed you with manna, which you didn't know about. Did your fathers not know that he might make you understand that man does not, you can quote it with me, live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Verse 6, therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. Our circumstances do not test the provision of God. God's provision is constant, habitual, enough, sufficient, on time. But God uses our circumstances to test what is in our heart, to see if we are willing to obey Him in every circumstance. So verse 3 indicates that when He humbled them through hunger, He fed them with a purpose and the purpose was that they would begin to understand the spiritual dimension behind this physical bread. And that is that man doesn't have to live by bread alone, but everything that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So here's how this works in real life. Romans 8.28 teaches us that God is at work in everything for good. Now, we're able to see that oftentimes in past tense, aren't we? You go through a difficult time and you're struggling in the middle of it. And then weeks later or months later or years later, you look back and say, gosh, wasn't God always at work? Now, here's the role of faith to believe that during those difficult circumstances, to believe it in real time. Paul and I were privileged to be at Southwestern Seminary during the tragedy of the Wedgwood shootings. You, you may remember that story. It's on CNN. A number of those that were martyred there were students on our campus, and they were there for a rally around the pole night at a local church. 
I was out visiting with our pastor when the gunman entered in and then we got calls and we were there just moments after the event had occurred. The next day in chapel, we, I think we had four of our students that had been martyred and there were several high school students. One of our New Testament guys was preaching in chapel. He chose the passage, Romans 8, and we had news forecasters from every network, as you can imagine, and, and, and many of them were asking the question, why such a tragedy? These kids were seminary students, you know, why, why would God allow such a thing? And one of our New Testament guys, a kind of a legend on our campus, stood up and he said, I'm going to preach on Romans 8, 28, and I'm going to begin by telling you what it does not say. It does not say that God causes everything. Because God cannot be the author of evil. So if you're thinking he caused that man to come in and take the lives of those kids, you're wrong. That's the devil's work. He kills, steals, and destroys. God doesn't do that. But he said, I'll tell you what does it. Is that God's greatness in his provision is not limited by the work of the adversary. And that God will work in every circumstance for good. He said, the good is not always what we think, because our good oftentimes delivered me from this situation. God's good in your difficult circumstances is to conform you to the image of his son. Go read that, Romans 8, 28, 29. So God sometimes takes those hard moments in our life, in our nation, in our church, and he uses those in such a way that it conforms us to the image of his own son, which is his ultimate goal. He said, we one day are going to be like him. That's what the scripture says. So in this journey, what God wants to do with the circumstances of Israel, which they often fail to understand, he said, I let you hunger. Why? So that I could test or prove you. The word testing means to prove. He's not trying to fail you. Maybe you felt that way about your biology professor or whatever it was. He's not trying to do that. He's trying to test Israel to teach them that they can every day rely on his word and his provision. So God uses our circumstances always to test us. Uh, thirdly. I am watching the clock, not paying much attention, but I am watching it. <laughs> Radical obedience, the requirement. We can read this passage and like the emphasis on the necessary response of obedience. Look at, go back to Exodus chapter 15, if you would. This is one of those, what I call, if-then covenants in the Old Testament. This one requires a response. There are certain covenants that God gives that are simply based on his sovereignty, but there are other covenants that have a response required. Verse 26, he said to them, if, so there's the if, if you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God, do what is right in the sight, give ear to his commandments, keep his statutes, I will put none of these diseases. In other words, this is where he says, Jehovah Rophe, that have put on the Egyptians, I am the Lord your healer. There is in this context an if-then. Our obedience or lack thereof has consequences. So in verse 4 of chapter 16, he says, then the Lord said, behold, I'm going to raise bread from heaven for you. The people go out and gather the day's portion that I may test what? Whether or not you will obey my instructions. 
Now, what's the instruction? Verse 16. This is what the Lord commanded. Give every man as much as he should each day. So he said, I'm, I'm testing you. And he tells them ahead of time. It's, it's not a surprise. You know, my students always say, I don't like it when a professor gives you a pop test. That, that, that's not fair. Well, you don't study every night. I mean, that's fair. I'm a professor. God says, okay, I'm going to give you a test. Here's what the test is. I'm, I'm going to just be straight up with you. If you obey, then here's the consequence. The, 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 the obedience is what? Just gather enough for the day because tomorrow I'll give you more. And some of them do what? Gather two days worth. And it's not on the Sabbath, so they've just obeyed the Word of God. So God's testing is to teach us obedience. So verse 16 records the command. Verse 20 speaks of their disobedience, the consequences. So they go out and they find none. Verse 27, and the Lord asked them, verse 28, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? So two critical truths. I want you to underline these. These are very important. Our disobedience reveals our unbelief and our lack of understanding of God's character. They even suggest that God has led them out of Egyptian bondage to kill them in the wilderness. Can, can you imagine? Yeah, we do that sometimes. Well, we sometimes blame God for the difficult circumstances in our life, come and give Him praise when everything seems to be going well. And, and we oftentimes question His goodness, question His character. God, by His nature, cannot do evil and does not withhold. But our disobedience, our disobedience reveals our unbelief. Now, what about our obedience? Our obedience unleashes God's provision in our life. There's a sense in which our obedience releases God's provision. Let me give you an old, a New Testament illustration, Matthew 13, 58. You remember there's an interesting passage that the Lord could not do many miracles in their community because of what? Their unbelief. Now, did they limit the Lord's sovereignty? No, they actually limited their ability to receive these miracles in their life. So let's look at a promise over in Deuteronomy chapter 11. This is one of those tough passages that you don't often hear preached on, but it's one of those important passages that we need to understand after they get ready to go back into the land, I told you we're in Deuteronomy. Look at chapter 11 in Deuteronomy. He's going to put them on two opposing mountains, and he's almost got an antiphonal choir. And he's got one part singing one part and one singing another here. And it's the story of the blessings and the cursings. Now, this is a strange one, so let me help you with it. Look at this in verse 26, Deuteronomy 11. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I'm commanding you today. The curse, if you do not listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, but you turn aside from the way I'm commanding you today, you follow other gods which you have not known. Now, what is that? Hang on. I know some of you are going, curse and God, those words don't go together. So follow me here. What is the blessing of God? Genesis 22 says, and I'm going to give you three Ps to help you. 
God's provision, God's presence, and God's protection. So the blessing of God is God's provision, His protection, and His presence. Now, what is the cursing? It's the removal of God's provision, His protection, and His presence by our disobedience. Now, some of you are still going, hmm, got to think about this a minute. We used to do this with our singles. We had a big singles ministry, about 500 of them, and I'd sometimes kind of, in the room where we're teaching, I'd put a sign A here and a sign B over that one, and I'd say, okay, got a choice when you leave today. You can exit this door back here and receive God's blessing. Or you can go out that door and receive the cursing. Now, the line for this door is going to be immensely long, right? And I said, there's a, there's a word marked over that door, and it's obey. Because obedience releases the blessings of God in our life. Let me give you another illustration. Some of you are still struggling here, and I understand this. Uh, I used to teach our kids, you know, I, I could put up a fence in the backyard, put sidewalks out there, and I'm going to protect you even if I'm not there. You stay inside this fence. As long as you're inside this fence, you have my presence, provision, protection. But what, guess what? So I'm riding home one day, and I notice that the gate to the fence is open, and one of my kids is out on their bike on the road where they're not supposed to be. So by their disobedience, they remove themselves from my provision, my protection. And because of that, uh, a car in front of me hits one of my children, and they're hurt. So I go to the hospital, and I'm ministering to my child, and they're, they're so sorry. And I say, honey, it's okay, it's okay. And, and, and they say, Dad, am I going to be okay? And I'll say, yeah, babe, you will be okay. God's going to hear you, but you'll limp. There are consequences to our sin. We sometimes forget that there are consequences to disobedience. And Israel had to learn the consequences that they were removing themselves. Now, let me say it another way, because I see some of you are still kind of gnaw on this one. God does not withhold any good thing. That's what Scripture teaches, it doesn't. He talks about if a, if a child asks their father for a biscuit, he's not going to give them a rock. He's not going to give them a serpent. And, and if a good, an earthly father knows how to give good gifts, how what does he say? How much more does your father know how to give? So God will not withhold any good thing, but our unbelief leads to disobedience, which results in our inability to receive and see God's abundant daily provision. That's what Israel's having to learn in this journey. God said, I tested you to see if you'd obey. And that obedience releases all of my blessings in your life. And so Israel's on a spiritual journey to learn exactly what I need to learn and what you need to learn. And that is that in our obedience, God's word is for our good. That's why he gave it. And when we obey that word, it releases his provision, his protection, his presence in our life. And when we disobey, we remove ourselves in that sense. So it's not as if God is cursing us. That's not the nature or character of God. It's that our disobedience puts us in a place where we cannot experience or see the abundance that he desires for us. Why we must remember. And last question. Did you notice that at the end of this, he tells them to do something strange. Put an omer of this in a jar. Apparently it was put in the ark. 
Now, God's going to provide, and He not only is going to provide, He's going to preserve this that would go away. Why do they have to do that? Because we're prone to forget. And many of you grew up like I did in a little country church. It was small. And right down the front, there was a table all the time that said what? This do in remembrance of me. Why? Because we forget. So when we forget that we were destined for hell, and he showed us grace, that when we didn't deserve it, he died in our place. When we do that, everything else is icing. When I hear people say, well, when I stand before God, he just wants what I deserve. I'm going, not me. I deserve death. Wages of sin is death. But he gives us life. Well, any of you old enough to remember Paul Harvey? Well, let me give you the rest of the story. It's actually in John chapter 6. The Lord himself uses this event. Remember the story of the feeding of the 5,000? Crowds follow him around and across the Sea of Galilee. Why? To feed them again. They're, they're appetites, just like the Israelites. So he feeds the 5,000. They're now, he departs, and they're all following him, and they get to the other side, and, and they want another feeding, another miracle. Give me more food. His challenge, chapter 6, verse 27, do not labor for food that perishes, but for food that endures to everlasting life. He asks for a sign. They remind Jesus of the bed provided in the wilderness that Moses fed them every day. You've just done one miracle. So listen to verse 32, 33. Truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who gave you the bread out of heaven. It's my Father in heaven who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Their response, I hate to tell you this, verse 43, they grumble, sound like their forefathers, they're murmuring against him. God's response to their murmuring, verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven that one may eat it and not die. I am the living bread that came down of heaven anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. As we bow together this morning, let me ask a couple questions. Do you know the bread that gives life everlasting? Jesus used this story of Israel to say there's a bread that nourishes forever. You know what that means? It means forever, eternally. That we've been saved, and once we're saved, we're sealed in Him by the Holy Spirit. Our sins are forgiven. We're given a new home, a new address, a new father, a new relationship. All the old things have passed away. So if you're here this morning and you've never received Christ as your personal Savior, if you've never eaten of the bread that satisfies every deep longing of your heart, I invite you to come. I encourage you to come. Some of you are here and you're Christians and you need your church home. You see, it is the community of fellowship by which God nurtures us. That's why we pray for our daily bread, not my daily bread.
God wants to develop us in community. He wants us to take us together on a journey of faith. Maybe you're here and you just need to come to this altar at this season of the year and kind of say, I need a fresh touch, a fresh taste of that living bread. Maybe you've lacked obedience. Maybe you've let your circumstances dictate. And you've not experienced the blessing that God wants to pour out deeply in your life. Whatever it is, let's just ask the Father to confirm it. I'll be here. If you want to come pray with me, I'll be glad to do that. If there's more than I can handle, we got deacons and staff to be glad to pray with you, encourage you. If you want to join the church, we'll talk with you about how we do that and receive members by relationship with Christ, by letter from another church, fellowship. Father, your word is good seed. It never returns void. It's a promise in your word. We claim it. But you tell us that the soil can reject the seed. So you gave us a parable and you threw out this seed, good seed. And some of the soil was so hard, it couldn't receive it. Lord, if we have a hard heart, open it up. Other soil had thorns and thistles, cares and concerns of the world, and they didn't receive it. It grew up quickly and is gone. Strangled. By the affairs of life. Other soil had uh, shallowness. They received it for the moment, but it didn't go deep. And then there was that good soil, a hundredfold. Lord, I'm praying for good soil this morning. If there's one here who's too timid, who's too afraid to trust in you, that you would provide that good soil. If there's a hard heart, break it open. If there are thorns and thistles, rip those out. Create a depth in us to know you and share you with the world. In Jesus' name, amen. You come, feel the freedom to do that if you want to use the altar, and one of us pray with you, encourage you if you want to.